Welcome to the Ridge Life Podcast. We at Pleasant Ridge Christian Fellowship trust this message will be an encouragement to you. If you're interested in more information about our church, visit our website at lifeattheridge.church. We're going to be in the uh, book of Philippians, chapter number one, here this morning. And uh, do want to wish every father a happy Father's Day. How many of you have plans for today? Barbecue, sit at home, mow the grass. <laughs> but I do want to wish you happy Father's Day. So we're going to be here in uh, Philippians chapter number one. And uh, Paul's uh, letter here, he's uh, writing to this church at uh, Philippi, and uh, he's expressing to them this, uh, this overwhelming thankfulness that he has towards them because of a gift that was uh, given to him uh, while he was uh, in prison, and this gift was sent to him uh, by one of the uh, members of the church at Philippi, Epaphroditus. Uh, we read about it here in uh, Philippians chapter number four, verses 15 through 18. He talks about this. He says, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of Laodiceans. And, uh, whoops, sorry, wrong one here. Um, Philippians 4, yeah, verse 15 and 18. He says, and you Philippians yourselves know that I am, that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now remember where Paul was in all this. He was in prison. And he was in prison because he was preaching the gospel. And the conditions in a Roman prison were not very favorable. In fact, Epaphroditus, who brought the gift to Paul himself, fell sick. He fell ill. And uh, Paul actually writes to them and he says, you know, I know you're very concerned about your brother Epaphroditus because he's been sick. In fact, he was almost even sick unto death. He almost died. And... Uh, Paul wrote to them, and it overflows, this letter overflows with joy, even in the midst of Paul's circumstances and the condition uh, that he had found himself in. And he prays for these believers, is what we're going to be looking at as, as part of this prayer here, as he begins to pray for them. And his prayer for these believers in, in Philippi, Paul says that he prays with joy towards them. He's, he's, his heart is overflowing with joy towards them, and he's praying with joy. I find that phrase most interesting because of his circumstances. And, uh, but regardless of his circumstances, Paul's outlook in his prayer life is that of joy towards his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. He had this outlook of joy towards others. Um, because of what Christ had done in his life. You know, today's message is not so much of how to pray uh, with joy, but why Paul could pray with joy. And I think it'll give us a pattern to follow as well as we keep our focus on Christ. So here's what I'd like for you to take away with you today. We can have joy 
because of the confidence in what Christ has done and will continue to do as we persevere to the end. We can have joy because of the confidence in what Christ has done and will continue to do as we persevere to the end. So let's take note here of the scripture here, what we have here. So praying with joy because of who we are in Christ. Paul says this in verse number one, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Verse three, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. So Paul's prayer here is a reflection of who they were in Christ. It seems he thinks of these Philippian believers often evidenced by this phrase here. Look what he says. Always in every prayer of mine for you all. Always in every prayer of mine for you all. You see, Paul was in prison chained to guards 24-7. You can take somebody's freedom away, but you cannot take their joy away. And that's where Paul had found his joy was in Christ. Paul's memories of the Philippians caused him to pray with joy here. And his prayer was a remembrance of who they were in Christ. Look again in verse number one. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus. There's a remembrance of who these uh, people were, and he says they are in Christ. And that brought great joy to Paul's memory. These were people who Paul labored with and won them to Christ. He faithfully proclaimed the gospel to them. Notice here again, Paul's prayer is that of joy. Why was Paul so joyful? Well, he was remembering who they were before Christ and now that they were in Christ. I'm sure he remembered Lydia and how uh, they met and how the gospel changed her life and their, and their house. More than likely, Lydia was a widow and she was also a woman who had money. She was a, a woman who had of, of great means and how she was used and, and how they used possibly her house to actually have uh, meetings together. There was great joy that Paul had remembering these things. Paul might have also been thinking about the demon-possessed slave girl who came to faith in Christ. He might have been thinking of Epaphroditus who was there with him and had fallen very ill. I'm sure Paul remembered the Philippian jailer, his conversion, and the conversion of his whole household. The point is, there was at one time in every believer's life before being in Christ that we were lost without hope, enemies of God, dead in our trespasses and sins, and without the relationship of saving grace, how did we change? What happened? The message of the gospel came to us, and we received it, we believed it, and Christ changed us. Christ had changed their hearts and lives and made them saints in Christ Jesus. I think it's important to remember as we pray to remember who we are in in Christ, who we are in Christ, that we've been changed, that God has done a tremendous work of salvation in our evil hearts and made us new creatures in Christ. More importantly than that, Paul gives us an example of praying for others. Notice the words here. Look what he says. All, 
He prays all and always, always in every prayer of mine for you all, all. He prays for them all. He didn't leave any of them out. He prayed for every single one of them. He loves them all. He prays for them all. All of them are dear to him. All have their place in his prayers. How many of us pray for each other? Even in this congregation, do we pray for each other? I know I'm guilty of not praying for everyone. Do we pray for each other? Paul says, I pray always and all for all of them. Notice the last phrase here, verse number four. He says, making my prayer with joy. Paul loved these people. He loves them with the love of Christ, with the heart of Christ. It is from a heart of love that joy overflows from his heart towards them and for them. He prays with joy towards them because he loves them. So we should be able to pray with joy because of who we are in Christ. We should be able to pray with joy towards others because of who they are in Christ. Notice the second thing here that Paul makes mention of, because of the partnership of the gospel. Notice also Paul's prayer here. Look what he says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. There's been a partnership in the gospel. Paul says here that he is praying with joy because of their partnership. Paul says here, from the first day until now. Think about that. Their support was constant and faithful in the life of Paul. From the first day that Paul met them, they partnered with him, even until now where Paul found himself in prison, they were still partnering with him. From the time Paul had first reached them with the gospel until the time that he was sitting in prison, 10 years had elapsed. So from the first time until now, 10 years had went by and they were still partnering with Paul in supporting him. Through this whole time, the saints at Philippi were still showing their support to Paul. So Paul here is thanking God for their help, their cooperation towards the work of the gospel. They helped forward the work by their prayers, their labors, their giving, as evidenced by the gift that was even sent to Paul by Epaphroditus. This is something that every local church should be doing. We should be partnering with the gospel. Here at Pleasant Ridge, uh, we support and partner with, with missions and, and, and various different types of uh, ministries. And I challenge you as a believer in Christ, if you don't know which ministries or which missions that we support, find out. See how you can become a partner with that. It doesn't necessarily have to be monetary. It could be prayers. We even support things that are even local here. How could you partner together with them for the gospel? could be by using your gifts or your talents to come alongside and to partner with them for the gospel. The term gospel here in uh, Philippians occurs nine times. For Paul, the gospel was the good news about Christ is what he said in uh, Philippians 1.27, oh, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. 
of Christ so that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit of one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So it was the good news. It was to be uh, defended and confirmed. In uh, verse number seven, he says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. The gospel is to be furthered is what he says in uh, verse number 12. He says, I want you to know brothers that what has happened to me has really served to the advance, the furtherance of the gospel. The gospel is to be lived out in the face of opposition. It's to be contended for is what he says in Philippians chapter four, verse number three. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these, or rejoice in the, or excuse me, verse number three, yes. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And it was to be contributed towards in Philippians 4, verse 15. But I think Paul is talking about something more here than just financial support. I believe every Christian should be partnering in the gospel and making sure they themselves are holding to and contending for the gospel. Every believer should be allowing the gospel to be transforming their lives. The gospel is confirmed through the church when our lives show the fruit of God's working in our lives. It's confirmed that yes, there's life there, that these people have been transformed by the gospel, that they are repenting of sin and they're allowing the grace of God to transform them into new creatures in Christ Jesus. There's a confirmation there. Every believer should have a part in the partnership of this gospel. I believe this is the problem with American Christianity that we see today. We have churches full of consumers rather than partners. Christ never saves anyone so that they can just add church attendance to their weekly list of things to do. Nor does he save anyone so that they can live happier lives that are just as self-centered as they were before. Every believer is saved to serve God. Sadly, many view the church like consumers who are shopping for a place that will meet their needs. So they try out this church, and they go over to this church, and oh, well, this church has this program for me. This church can tell me about this, and this church can do this for me. That is so self-centered. What should it be about? It should be about the church coming together to serve God. That's it. And so if they have an unpleasant experience or if they hear of another church that seems to offer better programs, they change to it if another one better suits their needs. The point of the church is decidedly not to meet the needs of folks who decide to give them their business. The church is a fellowship of those who serve Jesus because of those who serve Jesus because he bought them with his blood. That service sometimes includes 
even being persecuted. Paul here mentions how the Philippians were partners with him in this imprisonment and the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. He says in verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. In verse number 29, he says this, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but that you should also suffer for his sake. It's a gift. Did you know that taking on the sufferings and the persecution of Christ is a gift? That's something to be welcomed, to share in the sufferings of Christ. That's something to be welcomed. Can you imagine if the Philippian church were using some sort of advertising to market the church today? Come join our church. You'll love suffering with us. We have the best persecution program in town. Can you imagine? Would you want to go to that church? Probably not. Paul really hits this hard by saying they have partnered with him in the gospel. Partnering with the gospel also means that you are engaged in the defense of the gospel. The Christian church is engaged in spiritual warfare for the souls of men and women. In fact, today, in fact, today at 5 o'clock p.m., today is June 21st, there's going to be a very special event that is going to be taking place with our, uh, with our sun and our moon. And also today at 5 o'clock p.m., a Luciferian march for a one-world government will be held in at least 22 U.S. cities today. Today, 5 o'clock. There is a war, people, that is going on. And we need not close our eyes to it. And so we need to stand firm in the defense of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is under attack today, not only from outside the camp, but it's also attacked from the inside of the camp. When Paul was writing to the Ephesian elders in the book of Acts, he commended them basically and said, look, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves are going to come in, not willing to spare the flock, and they are going to want to devour the flock. And he says, you need to be watchful. You need to keep watch. And he says, they will arise from even from within your own selves. There's a lot of voices being pushed right now for people to support certain things. One of such voices, a new gospel that is being promoted by churches and being supported, is a gospel of social justice or a gospel of critical race theory. This is really hot right now. Our country is going through a culture war. You can sense it, you can feel it, you can feel what's happening. And more now than ever, our churches need to be defending the gospel. Critical race theory is a Marxist ideology which leads to communism. What's wrong with it and how is it becoming another gospel? 
Well, it cannot be reconciled with what the Bible teaches about sin and salvation. The critical race theory teaches that we should view all relationships in terms of the powerful, the privileged, the oppressors, and the powerless. Those are the marginalized and the oppressed. So no longer do we view people as equal, made in the image of God, but now we must put them and think of them in separate groups. This is why you're seeing people bow and ask for forgiveness for their privilege and hopes of gaining some sort of grace. Racism in and of itself is sinful. But the problem we're seeing today is that the word racist is being used to mean if you're white and breathe, you're racist because of the past. And so because of the past, we need to somehow now seek forgiveness from others that we had nothing to do with and those past sins that we were not a part of. The gospel already addresses that issue by dealing with all sin in Christ. So if you have received Christ, all sin has been dealt with in Christ. Now, obviously, if you have committed some sort of racist act towards an individual, you yourself have done that, then the Bible is very clear that you yourself need to go and seek forgiveness but not going to people that you don't even know and going to uh, things and asking for forgiveness of things that you've never even done. There's only one that you need to be bowing before, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the one and only true God. And so if you begin defining man's problem as something else other than sin and alienation from God, then now you can make up a remedy yourself for that, which in itself becomes another gospel. Every person's fundamental problem is that they have sinned against a holy, righteous God. And this is true for people in any and every category, whether oppressed or oppressor, victim or victimizer, marginalized or privileged. Paul lays out the argument for this in the first three chapters of Romans and later summarizes this in Romans 3, through 23. For there is no distinction, he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The main need of every person is to be reconciled to God. This is exactly what has been provided through the life and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So to be promoting or holding to anything else other than that message of the gospel, Paul says that even if an angel comes down from heaven and preaches to you another gospel other than that message of the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he says, let him be anathema, in other words, let him be damned. Let him be accursed. That's how serious this is. Paul spent a good time in his letters defending the gospel, often against false teachers in the church. So did John and Peter and Jude. So must we if we want to be faithful to Christ and partner with him in the defense of the gospel.
Sad to say, sad to say that there are churches all over, all over. And they are filled with people. People that may look like a Christian, act like a Christian. And these people are promoting this kind of stuff. The true church of Jesus Christ will defend the gospel. But everybody else is going to run after other things, other things, other things. Is that not what Jesus said? He said in the end times, there's going to be many people that are going to be coming and saying, hey, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. He says, don't do it. Don't do it. You yourself need to be defending the gospel. Look at the third thing here. Paul's able to pray with joy because of the confidence of salvation. Look what he says here, verse number six. I love this. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I love Paul's prayer here. I am confident. There's, there's surety. There's assurance here. And I am sure. I am confident. I have assurance, he says. It's amazing that the confidence that he displays here as he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul's penning these words, I am sure of this. I'm confident. And so Paul can pray with joy because of the confidence, the assurance of salvation. In other words, Paul's joy for these believers was rooted in the unchanging truth of God's word of the salvation process. The salvation process which began by God would have its full completion, its full effect until the day of Jesus Christ. We might think, how do we know that he's talking here about salvation here? Well, within the context, Paul is talking about being in Christ Jesus and the connection with the gospel. It has been said that verse number six is one of the three greatest verses in the Bible that teaches the perseverance of the saints, meaning the doctrine that no one whom God has brought to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ will ever be lost. The other two texts being uh, Romans uh, chapter eight and uh, verse number 38, when he's talking here, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then also in John chapter 10, 27, when Jesus was speaking to his disciples, and he tells them here, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And so the view I hold on this is probably different from what you may have heard or been accustomed to or believe. Some teach that a person can be saved, but if he turns away from Christ, he can lose his salvation. This view is called Arminianism. It was promoted by John Wesley, and I believe this view to be an error. Then there are some who teach that if a person professes faith in Christ, he is saved and thus eternally secure. But then even if this person lives a life of sin and goes back into the world with no evidence of salvation in his life, this person will be in heaven someday because, hey, 
Once saved, always saved. I believe that this view is an error as well. Jesus taught us that there will be many who are false converts and false believers. They are the tares among the wheat, like the seeds sown on the rocky ground, seem at first to be saved. But time proves that they were not truly saved because they did not persevere by bearing fruit unto eternal life. These are the ones that the Lord will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. I find that scripture teaches that salvation is entirely the work of God, not of man. The God who is powerful to save is also powerful to keep the ones he saves. Let me give you a powerful example of this right out of scripture, and more importantly, involving the Philippian church. In Acts chapter number 16, if you can remember, as Paul was traveling and he is led into Macedonia, hey, they call him, hey, come up here, we need your help. He has this vision, come up here, we need your help. Paul here, we have this accounts of the household of Lydia and the household of the Philippian jailer and how they responded to the gospel. And I believe also perhaps the slave girl, the demon-possessed slave girl. And it is the preaching of the good news that brings about salvation. The fact that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That in it of itself is the power of the gospel. That is the power of God to everyone who believes. So in Acts chapter 16, in verse number six, we have this, this story here of how the gospel actually came to these people. Now, this is just fascinating. And it shows us that salvation is totally of God. It's not of man. Look at verse number six, Acts 16, verse number six. And they went through the region of Phygra and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Wait, God forbid them to speak? Yes, he did. And when they had come up to Mysia, uh, they attempted to go into Bithia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them to. So here they are. Hey, we want to preach the gospel. Oh, God's not allowing us to go this way. Oh, we're going to go over here. Oh, God's not allowing us to go this way. Where does God lead them? Look what he says. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Interesting. Why didn't God command them to go to preach the gospel in those other areas? But no, what does he do? He tells them, you need to go over here. You need to go over here. I want you to preach the gospel to these people. Verse 10. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia. So he prohibited Paul and his companions from going to certain areas. And instead, he directed them to Philippi. And when they obeyed God's leading and preached the gospel to Lydia, look at verse number 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyria, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. 
Now notice this, this phrase is so important. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And so the Lord opened her heart to respond. As Jesus himself stated plainly, John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 6, 65, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Ephesians chapter one, verse number four, teaches us that before the foundation of the world, God chose us for he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Listen, the gospel message is not if you've got some problems in your life and you'd like to be a ha have a happier life, trust Jesus. That's not the gospel message. We often hear variations of this theme presented as the gospel, but they miss really the matter of the heart of the gospel, which is far greater consequence than enjoying a happy life here on the earth. If you want to live your life here happy on the earth, and that's all you're really trying to go for, guess what? You're really missing out. Because this life is going to pass away. It's going to burn up. And the only thing that will last will be the gospel, the word of God, Jesus, heaven. Those things are real. Those things are eternal. The true gospel confronts our fundamental problem, namely our alienation from a holy God due to our sin and rebellion. And if we die in this condition, we will be eternally separated from God under his just wrath in hell. But God, who is rich in mercy, the Bible tells us, provided his substitutionary lamb to make atonement for our sin so that all who trust in him are saved from God's judgment. And when that good news is proclaimed, the Holy Spirit bears witness of that truth of it in the hearts of whom the Father is drawing towards himself. Now listen to me, this is so important. Jesus said, I will build what? My church. Do you think that Jesus knows exactly who is in his church? Absolutely he does. He knows how many whites, how many blacks, how many Asians. He knows how many Hispanics. He knows all of those things. He knows all who is going to be in his church. So what should we be doing? Preaching the gospel. And as we proclaim the gospel, God is doing the transformative work in people's hearts, not man. And he is the one that is drawing those that he is going to be bringing into his kingdom. And he opens their hearts to believe the gospel. He removes the scales from their eyes so that they can understand the truth of the gospel. Philippians 1.29 says, For it has been granted to you not only to believe in Christ. So salvation is not at all from man, but rather is by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of the result of works, that no one should be able to boast. Titus 3.4-7 says, But when the kindness of God our Savior 
and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not by works of righteousness that we have done, but on the basis of his mercy through the washing of the new birth and the renewing of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us in full measure through Jesus Christ our Savior. And so since we have been justified by his grace, we become heirs with the confident expectation of eternal life. John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Listen to this. Who were born not of blood, nor the will of man of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. You don't become a Christian just because your parents were Christians. You don't become a Christian just because you were born and raised in America. It is solely based to the power of Jesus Christ transforming your heart. The point is that Paul could pray with joy because of the confidence of salvation in their life. That God who began the work of salvation would also be the same God who would complete their salvation in the end. And there's great confidence in that, knowing that what Christ could do. We'll develop this thought a little bit more next week, but let's pray together. If you're interested in more information about our church or knowing the peace that Jesus gives, visit our website at lifewiththeridge.church.